0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the NeuroDive Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Harris, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest for this episode, Mr. Alfie Cohn. Uh, welcome.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, to give you a, a bit of background, my the the, the NeuroDive project that I run, uh, I do a variety of work and I've been working with neurodivergent children and young people since about 2007 in various different roles Uh, through neurodive I give support to parents and families in the main uh, about adjustment approaches, things they can do in their home to support their child. Uh, I also do lots of webinars, lots of presenting, uh, training to organisations and parents and I Have recently, of about two years, become a parent myself, which is where I came across your book, Unconditional Parenting. And what was really interesting for me was I've put together my own kind of ideas over the years, uh, particular my sort of approach to supporting neurodivergent children and young people in general. I call sort of low demand. Uh, I've done a few sort of presentations, webinars about that, and. Reading your book, I was struck by how many similarities there were in there, but also it taught me a huge amount about uh, that conditional approach uh, and the, I guess how rewards would also be included into that. Uh, I guess if you if you set a reward, you're also removing something. You're setting them up to fail. So, and and to be honest, the the most sort of personally. Um, I guess provoking thing for me was actually with my own son, I was starting to question even the things that I'd taught people use, seen work for neurodivergent children and young people over the years and thinking, oh, maybe am I making a mistake? You know, it, I was still getting those instincts of being a bit authoritative and reading the book just not only kind of reaffirmed what I believed in, um, but it gave such a thick, depth of research and reason as to the um not only the the difference in effectiveness but the the damage I think that that more punitive conditional approach can do which I think I see in my work in the last decade intensely with those neurodivergent children young people I'm sorry Mr Cohn. that's probably the longest intro you've ever had (laughs) and it's also not not about you. So can I just tell the listeners quickly as well, if you haven't heard of Mr. Cohn's work, uh, I, I know he's written lots of books, but the two in particular that I'm kind of really interested in talking to him today about are unconditional parenting and punished by reward, rewards. And I would recommend them to anybody that listens to anything I do um, and, and thinks it has some value because, you know, like I said, there's lots of crossover, but also lots of inspiration for me from his work. Now, I, I, <laughs> Mr. Cohen, I do have a question. At some point, all right, uh, <laughs> I should, which I should probably get to pretty soon. I mean, is there anything you wanted to say to sort of introduce yourself to the listeners in case they hadn't heard of you before, or uh, anything, any place you'd like to uh, point no, them to?
1: No, thanks. Just just plunge in.
0: Just plunge in. Okay. Um, no, the, the first question I had is what kind of led you to, I guess, identifying, naming, describing. The unconditional approach was it was it more of a parenting journey or something you came across professionally like you know did it was it around the same sort of time how did you kind of lead into it
1: well i am a human being an ex-child and a parent but uh, much of my work grows out of research and there was sort of a step-by-step journey for me in understanding some of these ideas my very first book Dealt with the destructive effects of competition, okay. drawing from many different fields to show that whenever things are set up so that I can succeed only if you fail, a win lose adversarial encounter, everyone ends up the worse for it, even the winner. One of the reasons that it turns out competition is surprisingly counterproductive. has to do with the nature of motivation. A lot of us tend to assume that motivation is a single entity, something you can have more of or less of. You can be more or less motivated. But psychologists have long understood, most of them anyway, that there are different kinds of motivation, and the kind matters more than the amount. And specifically, psychologists talk about the difference between intrinsic motivation, which is where you do something because you find it valuable or worthwhile in itself, and extrinsic motivation, uh, which means you do something because of something outside or extrinsic to the task that will happen, such as you get a reward or you win uh, some kind of competition. Extrinsic motivators, like rewards and punishments, aren't just less effective. They end up killing intrinsic motivation. And that was just one small section of my book about competition. But later, I came to ask the broader question, what if there isn't a competition, if everybody can get a reward, but you're still doing it to get a reward? And I discovered another whole batch of research um, at work, at school, at home, and elsewhere, showing that rewards in general are counterproductive and are, in fact, a way of doing things to people rather than working with people. And they tend to undermine excellence at the same time that they undermine relationships and undermine people's desire to keep doing what they're doing. And that became my book, Punished by Rewards, that you, that you mentioned. And so whenever I see a huge cache of research and good, solid logic pointing in one direction, but notice that much of society is still heading off in another direction, uh, that tends to animate me and lead me to write a book. Um, and so that that became the book that applies to rethinking how parents treat children, whether they're neurotypical or neurodivergent, how teachers treat students and how employers treat employees.
0: 100 that's, percent. That's, that seems like a good reason then. If the weight of evidence is kind of suggesting something needs to change and it's It's interesting for me because coming from that background of working more predominantly with neurodivergent children, there's this kind of myth, I think, that seeps through that actually, because of behavioural research, we should be using those rewards, those consequences to to change behaviour. But that research never looks at the what's going on for each individual on the inside and in and knowing unconditional parenting you, you mentioned lots of pieces of research that look at that the damage of those more conditional approaches uh, one being that loss of uh, intrinsic motivation there was also things in there about it increasing the likelihood for the the young person to maybe hide things from, from their parents and, and be deceitful in, in their behavior and more ashamed of their behavior maybe? Is, could you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yes. Uh, let me start by saying that punishments like rewards can be effective at getting only one thing ever and that is temporary compliance mm-hmm. but at an enormous cost. I mean if I'm in a position to really hurt you unless you do what I tell you I may get you to do it but it will destroy our relationship, and it will certainly not help you develop a commitment to wanting to do that thing, um, uh, or to become a more morally sophisticated, caring person, an effective person. Exactly the same thing is true of rewards, which are not really the opposite of punishments, but just a different flavor of the same kind of controlling interaction. If I offer you something that you can't resist, a lot of money or a toy or a food that you like or whatever it is, I may be able to get you to do it. But again, it will destroy the relationship because now I'm not a caring ally in your mind. I'm a a goodie dispenser on legs. And um it will undermine your interest in whatever um whatever I had rewarded you to do. That's true for two reasons. First, because it's really control, even if if it's sugar-coated control, Um, and people don't like being controlled. They may want the goody, but they don't like having the things they desire being used to manipulate them, which is what all positive reinforcement is about. And the second reason that I think it has this effect, according to the research, is that when I say to you, do this and you'll get that... I have reframed the this, the thing that you had to do, as a prerequisite, something you wouldn't want to do, obviously. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have to bribe you to do it. So if you reward children for and praise them, which is just a verbal reward, good job, um, is is just a patronizing pat on the head. It's the same basic interaction as if I gave you you know, a, a pound for doing it, or a candy bar. Um, but when I say this to you, um, do this, or and you'll and you'll get that. Um, you now become less excited about the thing you had to do, um, and that that changes everything. So rewards and punishments have this. The same exact effect, regardless of whether people are considered neurotypical or neurodivergent. The difference is that with neurodivergent kids, it is widely accepted that you have to treat them that way. More more about doing things to them instead of working with them, even though it's just as destructive um, in those cases. The sad thing is that The behaviorists, the followers of the late B.F. Skinner and others, who talk about reinforcement protocols and so on, who use just terrible, terrible programs with names like positive behavior support or applied behavior analysis and many other things like that, this is is about treating children the way we would train pets. It's profoundly disrespectful, but it's also counterproductive with respect to the ambitious goals that we have um, for kids. And that's why it's pretty outrageous that we assume it's necessary, desirable, or even innocuous to use this kind of doing-to approach. Um, And obviously, people may need help from, perhaps... Uh, advisors like yourself, to think about more respectful and constructive ways of working with kids when there's a problem. But the one thing we know for sure, according to research and experience, is that no reward-based system, no manipulative way of dangling goodies in front of them until they obey us or please us, can ever help kids to become fully functioning, creative, curious, happy, ethical uh, members of a community.
0: I mean, that's just wonderful to hear, hear you sort of articulate that. It's it's, it, it's hard to describe how ingrained. I mean, maybe, you, maybe you're aware, maybe you've been within that circle, but how ingrained that idea of those conditional approaches is uh, particularly in that sort of field of supporting neurodivergent children i I know it's obviously certainly in the uk it's a big part of our school system in terms of mainstream schools anyway Uh, but it's like you said it's kind of been intensified for for those that aren't neurotypical Uh, and and i think we're here i'm hearing lots from those communities now about things like autistic burnout masking you know so where you've got autistic young people that perhaps because of that expect- expectation to change behavior because of that extrinsic consequence, whether it's rewarding, whether it's punishing, you're kind of you're rewarding conformity and punishing difference that is leading our children to do that at the cost of their own mental health, their own well-being and, and possibly yes, right. fear and anxiety which, it's just it's it's, like you say it's such a dangerous thing um okay so have you i had a question pop into my head actually whilst you're talking uh, and i don't know what the kind of understanding acceptance of of it as a label is in in the us currently but over here we have lots of people identifying with and talking about the label pda pathological demand avoidance so autistic with a pda profile or autistic with pda is that something you've heard of
1: no it isn't i'm not familiar with that
0: okay is it interestingly it was that label that led me towards lots of the approaches that i think would fit in that unconditional approach rather you know as as a counterpart to those more conditional approaches um but pda the idea is that it's an anxiety-driven need to be in control uh these autistic people with this particular profile which is often uh missed as a diagnostic because they show lots of things that are stereotypically not accepted as part of the autistic profile like surface level sociability whatever that is but you know that's the course kind of diagnostic criteria um but the, the old sort of thing at the core of it is if anyone's being too demanding, if anyone's asking them to do something in a particular way, if, it's, if you use those conditional approaches, they, they go into such a state of anxiety that often the behaviour becomes quite unsafe. You know, they are anxi- uh, the demand causes them fear. And because of that reliance, I think, on those conditional approaches, we're, we're quite often putting these young people into really traumatic states of distress using mm-hmm. those traditional approaches um and i wondered if there i mean i'm not saying that that's not an inherent neurotype that hasn't always existed but i wonder if we're seeing an increase in those responses in those young people because of this steering towards those more punitive measures and it, I, mean, I mean if if like you're saying the research base is so thick why why are we getting that? Why, why are people not listening? Why are people not taking it on board?
1: Well, the, your, the very end there veered off into a, a different direction <laughs> with a very different right. question than what preceded it. Um, let me start by saying um, I, I wrote a piece which is on my website and easily found for those who are interested called Autism and Behaviorism, which is a critique of applied behavior analysis, ABA. And one of the things I discovered in my research, uh, well, let me mention two things. One that I was embarrassed not to have known before is just how universally loathed ABA as as a behaviorist way of treating is by autistic people. And I came across many, many, blog sites, web pages, scholarly articles, Twitter feeds, Facebook pages, all by uh, mostly young autistic adults who had been deeply traumatized by being treated this way by the behaviorists, having the things they enjoyed most, the activities and the possessions being held for ransom, as one person put it, until they obeyed the therapist. And I came to realize that, um, that these programs of behavior control that are widespread in England, the U.S., and other countries, in fact, in some parts of the U.S., there's even requirements that this is how you have to intervene with autistic children, tens of hours a week of, of this, um, that we don't even seem to, to care that the people on the receiving end are in fact traumatized. And I came across one uh, a, a couple of studies suggesting that what tends often to develop is a kind of prompt dependence, meaning that as these children grow, children on the spectrum, they become less have less of a sense of agency and initiative because they've been trained, perhaps inadvertently, to depend on a more powerful person, controlling them to elicit the behavior that that more powerful person wants. And so what what you're describing, what's new to me, and I'm going to be looking up after our conversation of (laughs) pathological dependence, is not necessarily part of an innate condition but precisely paradoxically tragically the kind of thing that's elicited by the mainstream form of behavior control that's supposed to um uh, be used to to treat autistic children the second thing i came to realize in my research um which you you may well have known long before i i figured it out is The point of these programs, these kind of behavior modification programs, has never been to really do what's in the best interest of neurodivergent children. It's really for the benefit of neurotypical people who are uncomfortable with autistic people.
0: Absolutely.
1: To make them stop rocking, doing the stim stuff, uh, doing what they need to, uh, to, to cope with the world that often seems to them... Uh, difficult and challenging because it makes us feel odd. And so we're trying to make them stop being who they are and act in a more normal way because we prefer that. And of course, that process that basically says stop being who you are, which is at the core of behavior management, behavior control, is... Um, uh, not really. We have to ask about what the goals are, not just what's wrong with the method. Mm. And um, it's it's deeply problematic. When when I and I have loads in that article, autism and behaviorism. I have loads of links to various studies, to uh, writings by autistic people and by former. Uh, ABA therapists who are basically doing a mea culpa thing. I can't believe what I did to children for so many years, uh, almost torturing them, and was told, but it's evidence-based. You know, it's what the research says is the only thing that works, which, by the way, turns out to be totally false, as I discovered when I started looking at the actual research. When I started the process of looking at rewards in general, and and discovered how they're counterproductive across the board, neurodivergent or neurotypical, adult or child, um, regardless of gender, of culture, rewards inevitably backfire unless you're just talking about short-term obedience. Um, One of the things I came to realize is that the problem goes deeper than that And this is something that you and I have both alluded to briefly in this conversation, but I want to spell it out as a different point. I I began by seeing that rewards as extrinsic motivators are bad because they kill intrinsic motivation, the desire to do something. And incidentally, research has found that children who are often rewarded or praised are more self centered more selfish, less generous than their peers, uh, which makes perfect sense. If you say, good job, I really like the way you shared your your toy with your friend, that child now just became a little less interested in sharing for its own sake. You've taught him the reason to do it is to get the pat on the head. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I came to realize that there's another problem with rewards as well, and that is that they indicate conditional acceptance. there are now strings attached on our love from the child's point of view. Um, we're we're telling them that we don't love them for who they are, but for what they do, which means that when they don't do what they are um, expected to do, they fear that the care of the parent or or perhaps teacher, is going to be throttled back. And what children need, what we all need, but especially children, is not just to be loved, but to be loved for no good reason, which is to say unconditionally. All punishments, notably including forcible isolation, which we euphemistically call time out, and all rewards, including praise, are examples of conditional acceptance. You must do this to get that. And that's another whole reason why not only programs like ABA and other programs used with with, uh, autistic children, but the vast majority of point systems, contracts, behavior management in schools and at home, the vast majority of these these programs and systems and the advice that parents and teachers and therapists are given are fundamentally misguided, not only because they kill intrinsic motivation as a result of their controlling nature, but also because they communicate conditionality, whereas what children really need is an unconditional support that helps them, that guides them, that responds to their needs, that lets them uh, make decisions, um, but that fundamentally makes sure they know that they are loved no matter what, that we would never ignore them on purpose when we don't like what they're doing, or that we would um, threaten them uh, with with a loss of the care that nourishes and sustains people. So those are sort of the two points of my work, my two-point indictment of the behaviorist status quo. And the second, of course, is what uh, what I wrote up in that other book you mentioned, Unconditional Parenting.
0: Which is such a a nice sort of tie-in for me, really, because, again, it was that book that connected all the dots for me you know all those ideas about hang on this other approach that's been pushed forward perhaps isn't as effective but also it's I think it's doing some real harm and it connects all those dots but equally that that statement that what we need most of all especially from parents more than from anyone else is that unconditional yeah. love. and what's worrying is that parents are being convinced to take up those more school-based you know, uh, approaches that already do damage in those environments. But actually now we're saying, no, parents need to be more like this, firmer boundaries, more boundaries, reward charts, all that kind of stuff. Um, and for me personally, I, I, I have like ADHD myself. So, but I didn't sort of find out about that till quite late on in life. And, it, and it's been an interesting journey for me thinking about what helped me, uh, from my parents and looking back and reading your book I, I just it makes me think of, of my mum in particular but also my father because that that is what they did you know whilst I was getting in trouble left right and centre for things at school you know they would always let me know that I was unconditionally loved and that I think yeah always kept my self-esteem strong enough to just keep going and, and think it'll figure itself out I'll find what I'm good at what I'm interested in and it'll work uh, and it led me to have conversations with incredible people like yourself so thank you for spending half an hour talking to me Mr Cohn.
1: oh my pleasure I appreciate your interest <laughs>
0: um and if if anyone out there is listening please do look in and you haven't heard of Mr Cohn's work please do look into it uh, if you like anything I've talked about uh, in previous stuff and you've come to the podcast that way then you really really need to to buy his books uh, I, I'd recommend the, the unconditional parenting in particular for any parent I think it should just be pushed forward as as the the sort of the guide that parents get given maybe first of all <laughs> um, I, I know you've got you've got a head off, mr Cohn is that right?
1: uh yes, I think yes. we're good wrap up but thanks again for your for your time and interest
0: thank you thank you for talking to me take care
1: okay bye bye
0: bye bye